You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org. A couple weeks ago, we started a series called Ready to Answer with the, um, with the aim of equipping our church to wade into waters of conversations that are surrounding our culture right now. So we've talked about the reliability of scripture, we've talked about more relativism and the voices of relativism in our age. Um, this morning, we are gonna address the question, is Jesus really God? Do we have to, do we have to accept that in order to follow him and to be called a Christian, or, or is that an optional thing? I mean, can we just regard him as a moral teacher, as a historical uh, figure in, um, in centuries gone by? How do, we, how do we have to view him if we're gonna truly follow him and surrender our lives to him? Um, and so this morning, as we were preparing this series, uh, Dr. Jeff Hubing came to our mind. He's been a friend for a number of years now. It was probably 13 years ago as a college student. I went to Kyle for Winter Conference, and I heard Jeff Hubing speak, and his authority and anointing as he teaches and ministers was evident. And so over the years, I've stayed connected with him. We invited him back for a Kyle for retreat here in Iowa. We had him back here in 2018 to do something similar, minister in the morning and evening, and so we just had to have him back. And so that means you guys got to help me in welcoming Dr. Jeff Hubing as he comes this morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Give me a minute. I'm just looking around to see what I have to work with. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be back with you guys. And um, appreciate the invite, Drew, and it's been great to see you and Tanya and the kids. And um, I, I, uh, I'm here this time with my lovely wife, Carol. Carol's here. And um, she hasn't been able to come in the past because we have four lovely children with whom she spends a great deal of her time. Three of them now are in high school. That doesn't feel right, trust me. I, I, I can't be that old. I remind myself of that daily. But three in high school, and then we've got a 10-year-old, so it's, um, it's nice to, to be away for a day or two. Just, you know, get a deep breath and, before we dive back in. But it's, it's great to be with you, and I want to speak to you today about this question, is Jesus really God? Full disclosure, the answer is going to be yes. In case, I mean, this is a Christian church, and I expect you maybe came in with that conviction when you, when you entered the door today. But um, I think the goal I have today is to help everybody here understand why the answer is yes. And we're going to look at some scripture today. We're going to think as well as we can about this so that I hope everybody walks out of here this morning with a sense of not full understanding, because I think some like this is not something you're going to understand fully, but you might feel competent with the answer yes, for a variety of reasons. So I want to start by saying that the New Testament is the primary source of authority that we're going to answer that question from. It's the inspired record of both Jesus' teaching and the teaching of his apostles about the gospel, about his message, about his identity, and purpose. And what I'm going to suggest is that the, the New Testament answers that question affirmatively. Yes, Jesus is God, but it gives you information about that in two ways. One is explicit, and the other is implicit. 
Now, the difference between explicit and implicit is this. Explicit means it actually states that in certain passages of the New Testament, which we'll have a look at. Implicit means it doesn't come out and state it directly, but it creates a scenario in which you can logically come to no other conclusion. Say, well, I... Not a philosophy student. Can you break it down for me? Yes, uh, let me give you a real life, practical example of the difference between explicit and implicit. Comes from my life. My life. Here's what happens my wife is standing in the kitchen of our home and she looks over to me. I'm seated over here in the living room and she says, Babe, would you please do the dishes? Right? That is an explicit statement revealing her desire in that moment. There can really be no question about what she wants, right? She stated it to me plainly. And now I have to respond to that desire one way or another. If you got any brains at all in your head at that point, you get up and you say, yes, dear, right away, dear. (laughs) It's kind of funny. We've been watching the... uh, what you call it, the Downton Abbey. You familiar with this? <laughs> it got, it was recommended to us by some friends, and we've been watching it for four years. I think we're through season three. I mean, it's like an episode every few months. But after we first started watch, watching it, I re- began referring to my wife as your ladyship. <laughs> so in a situation like that, she'd say, babe, would you please do the dishes? And I was like, yes, your ladyship, right away, your ladyship. And Come over and, you know, do the dishes. So that's explicit. She's making it plain. It's clear what she wants. Now let me tell you about implicit. Implicit is when a situation arises in which there can be no other conclusion if you're thinking logically. Implicit sounds like this. My wife is in the kitchen. I'm over here in the, lady, in the living room. And I hear from the kitchen, boy, there sure are a lot of dishes in the sink. Which is followed by the turning of her head something like this. Now, she hasn't explicitly come out and said, would you please do the dishes? But she's created a condition in which I can come to no other conclusion, if you follow me. What she wants is for me to do the dishes. She hasn't said it, but she's said enough for me to be able to conclude that. That's what she's looking for. Now, I have to admit, I'm not the strongest on the implication type thing. This could be a man thing, but I don't want to be a gender biased. I don't want to use inappropriate language, but it is a me thing, which is the case. I'm much better with tell me what you want, and then we'll, we'll get that sorted. And I think my wife is more along the lines of, I want you to figure out what I want. So I'm going to drop a few breadcrumbs here, and if you're paying attention, you should be able to figure that out. So... We're gonna, it'll be 20 years in April that we've been married. Thank you. But I swear, sometimes I really would pay a lot of money for a breadcrumb detector in some of these cases. I'm, I'm just not, I, I apologize regularly, but I'm not good at it. But that is what implicit means. In the New Testament, now to return to our subject matter this morning, we have explicit and implicit evidence that Jesus is God. Now, I want to cover the explicit ones first because I think they're the, the easiest to understand. Right? I think we're all familiar with John chapter 1 and verse 1. 
where it says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's, it's an explicit statement. It's a direct equation of the Word who became flesh, that's Jesus, with God. And despite what the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, grammatically, it's a direct equation in the original language. It is saying Jesus is God. That's one of the clearest statements in the New Testament. But you also have Thomas saying it. If you remember this in John chapter 20 and verse 28, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to 11 of the disciples, or 10 of them at one time, but Thomas was not with them. Okay, remember Judas had gone off and hung himself. Thomas wasn't there. He got the report and he said, I won't believe unless I can touch his hands and his feet. So in John 20, Jesus appears again and says, hey, here, my hands, my side, go ahead. And Thomas's response is to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Direct statement, identifying Jesus as God. Paul makes a statement like that. In Romans chapter 9, He's addressing the gifts that God had given to Israel as a people, their heritage and their national promises. And he says this in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, from their ethnic group, according to the flesh is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Direct statement on Paul's behalf. Titus 2 verse 13, he does the same thing. Hebrews chapter 1. You might, regain, you might remember that at the beginning of Hebrews, Jesus is compared with the angels, and he is shown to be far above them. In fact, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's an interesting phrase in Greek. It reads the character of his hypostasis. It means he is... The copy, the, the, the matching imprint of his essence. One scholar says, essentially what it means is that he is what he is. He is all that he is. Uh, it's a very clear kind of direct statement about Jesus being what God is. I want to give you one more in John chapter 8. Jesus is arguing with the Jews about their inability to respond to or to obey the instruction that they have already see, received through, through Moses and through the Old Testament scriptures. There's a debate that's going on. And Jesus makes a reference in verse 56 to Abraham. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Of course, their point is valid. Jesus, we estimate, was somewhere in his early to mid-30s. And he's making a claim to know the mindset of a man who had been dead for some 1,500 to 2,000 years. He said, Abraham, you know, referring to him like he knew him, Abraham Rejoiced to see my day. He was making this kind of a claim. And they say, what's the matter with you? You're not even 50 years old. How is it that you know Abraham? Jesus' response in verse 58, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, this is a phrase in Greek. Uh, 
Those two words, ego and me. Ego is where we get our word ego in English. It just means I or myself or me. A me is the verb here. It is the, the, the conjugation of to be. So what he's saying is I am. He's making a statement. Two words, but they're, they're such critical words. These are the very same words that we find in the Greek translation of Exodus 3, 14. If you remember that, it's the encounter that Moses has with the burning bush. So on the backside of the desert, he sees a bush on fire. He walks up to it and has an encounter with God, wherein God commands him to go back to Egypt to liberate the people. And Moses is kind of objecting to this, raising objections. It's not going to work. I can't do that. Besides, he says, if I come up to the people and I tell them who sent me, what am I supposed to say? A bush? <laughs> so God responds by saying, here's what you tell them. If they ask you, you say, I am sent me. I am that I am. And the phrase ego me is found there in Exodus 3.14. Jesus is making a clear statement about his identity. Because grammatically it's jacked up. What he should have said is before Abraham was, I was, right? That's the proper grammar. Like if you're trying to say, I was around before him, you would say before Abraham was, I was. But what he said is before Abraham was, I am. Which is a direct correlation, which everybody knows is the identity of God for the Jewish people. So you have a number of passages here that make a direct link between the identity of Jesus and the identity of God, several passages in the New Testament by multiple authors and speakers. So there's enough evidence there, in my view, to make a pretty plain statement. Yeah, the New Testament affirms that Jesus is God, explicitly. But it also does it implicitly. It also creates scenarios in which you can really come to no other logical conclusion but that. I gave you the example of my dishwashing responsibilities. Let me give you some examples of how the New Testament authors create these implicit conclusions. Let's open up to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark chapter 2. One of the objections to this kind of logic is to say, well, if he really meant to say he was God, why didn't he just come up and say it? To which I might respond probably for the same reasons you and I would think if someone came and said that to us. <laughs> like, what, you know, automatically if someone comes to you and says, yeah, hi, I'm God, nice to meet you, you think, well, that's ridiculous, you know, you, you, it's a bold, audacious claim. It's, it's kind of like weird, you know, just in general to say that. I think that there is a, a deliberate strategy on Jesus' part as well as the New Testament author's part to invite people to wrestle with the realities of Jesus. What is being revealed in and through him? And to be responsible for the taking of conclusions that come from this information. So Jesus frequently operates in this way where he won't come out and make direct statements, but rather he'll create situations in which you have to judge. And what it does is, in a way, it reveals the nature of one's own heart. He tells parables all the time. Why? 
Well, for people to choose. Because people have to make a decision. They have to make a call. He's not going to always lay out all the information for us. There are times when we have to step out and we have to choose. Do I believe the implications of this or not? It's part of the gospel. The parables like reveal the hearts of the listeners just as much as they reveal the truth of the kingdom. One of the things Jesus says in Mark 4 and 24, he says, watch how you listen. For in the same way you measure, it'll be measured to you and more besides. To him who has, little, to ha- to him who has more will be given. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. He's the guy who says, if you have two coats, give one to the other guy. He's the guy who says, if you have to go one mile, go an extra mile the other, you know, to help out the other person. The thing is, he's not talking about material possessions here. He's talking about insight. He's talking about kingdom insight. And that's why he says, be careful how you listen. Because your response to the gospel right, is the way in which the kingdom is going to respond to you. So think about these parables and these stories as invitations on God's part to consider the implications of what's happening and to respond accordingly. So one story here in Mark 2 in the beginning, you you probably remember this one. It's the man who's paralyzed and his friends bring him to Jesus. The house is packed, so they carve a hole in the roof. Hopefully they had insurance. They carve a hole in the roof. They lower the dude down. And Jesus' first words are, you're healed. No, actually not. His first words are, according to Mark 2, 5, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, didn't anybody come there that day to get forgiveness? They came to get healed. But he was paralyzed. They needed him to get better. That's why they brought him. But Jesus' agenda is different. And so he says, son, your sins are forgiven because he's pressing the issue, not just about whether he has power, but why he has power, who he is. And immediately the response on the part of the scribes, these are experts in the Old Testament and religious law. They're questioning in their hearts, why is he talking like this? He is blaspheming. Blasphemy means to ascribe qualities to God that are not true of him or to ascribe qualities of God to people who aren't God. That's an easy way of understanding blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Boy, there sure are a lot of dishes in here. Okay, that's your, yeah, that's your implicit cue. You follow me? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, that's the setup. And Jesus knows the deal. He understands what's going on. So he makes a statement. He's listen, what's easier? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. We all know the answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can actually validate that. Right? How does anybody really know? I can say, oh, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You get a car. You get a car. I mean, sorry. Your sins are forgiven. Everyone's like, ah. ah." I mean, who knows, actually, if their sins are forgiven? Nobody can validate that. That's a claim that can't be proven. But But the command, get up and walk, can either be responded to or not. 
You're either going to validate that command or not. Either he's going to get up or he isn't. It's harder to say that because then you've got to deliver the goods. You can't just say he's healed and there he lays on a mat. Come on, buddy, you're healed. You know, he's like, there's nothing. So he says, listen, tell you what I'm going to do. So that you all may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up and walk. And pop, this guy pops up and starts walking. He's saying, look, I, I have authority to forgive sins, and I'm going to validate that for you by doing something that in your eyes is harder than saying what I just said. I'm going to prove my authority by raising this guy up from his mat. See, Jesus created a scenario in which they could come to no other conclusion. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I can forgive sins. Implicit conclusion? I'm God. See? He didn't come out and say it, but he implicitly creates the scenario in which you can't. I mean, there's no other judgment that could be made right there. Okay? That's one passage. Let's look at another one. Turn a few pages over to the right, Mark chapter 4. Beginning in verse 35, we have another story about Jesus. Another really popular one that probably everybody knows if you've been around church for a while or grew up in Sunday school. This is the one where he calms the sea. Remember this? They're out sailing. Make it sound like he's on a yacht, right? They've gone sailing. (laughs) Right away. Would you bring the yacht around? So they're out. They're out sailing, and there arises this tempest, you know, this storm. A nor'easter comes off, the, you know, uh, over the Lake of Galilee, and they're all, the disciples are worried about their lives, they're fearful for their death, and Jesus is napping. And so they're, you know, I mean, they're frantic, and they're waking him up, and they're like, Master, don't you care whether we live or die? And, of course, he wakes up and he calms the storm, etc. And many times that parable, that, not really parable, that story gets allegorized and applied to the troubles of our lives, right? Like, uh, if you're in a stormy sea, you know, wake Jesus up from his nap. No, I, I don't know. That's really not the application. But the idea is it, when we're going through difficult times, Jesus is at rest and he's going to calm everything down for us. I understand. I mean, it's true that we should take Things to the Lord Jesus during times of stress and anxiety and all the rest. We have Philippians 4, a direct teaching on that. You know, don't be anxious, but with everything, prayer, petition, thanksgiving, bring your requests before God. His peace will guard your hearts and minds. It's true, but it's not really the point of why the story's in Mark 4. And I know that because of the way the story ends. Because if you keep reading, yes, he calms the sea. Yes, he rebukes the disciples and encourages them to have faith. But look at verse 41. They're filled with great fear. Great fear. Think about that. And they said to one another, who is this then? That the wind and the waves obey him. The story's in the gospel not just because of the power of Jesus, but because of the conclusion you're meant to come to about his identity. Who is this? Now, if you're a good Jew in the time of Jesus, of course, you've read the Bible, you've read the scriptures, and you might be familiar with, let's say, Psalm 106, verse 9, which says about Yahweh, the God of Israel, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. It's it's the same language here. Jesus rebuked 
the wind and the waves. Or Psalm 107, verses 28 through 30. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven, which is what happens in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, when they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. There's a roadmap in the Psalms. It tells you something about God. He controls the weather. There's only one person that controls the weather. Jesus controls the weather. There's a lot of dishes in this sink. See, this is the implicit conclusion. There's no other conclusion you can come to. Nobody else has authority over creation like that. Nobody else can control wind and waves. God is the one who can do that. Jesus is doing that. Who is this then that the wind and the waves obey him? You're meant to come to the This is God. Somehow. Whether we understand it or not, this is he. He's the one doing it. All right, one more. Mark 6. Again, just... Working through some passages in the Gospel of Mark. You can do this with any of the Gospels, by the way. And frequently what you're going to find, the implications of the text are steering you in this direction. They're setting the, the, the table for you. All you have to do is pick up the fork, you know, sit down and start eating, and you realize the reality of this. That even though it's not directly there in black and white, or red and white, depending on your Bible. Even though it may not be directly there, but there's, you can't come to any other conclusion. Mark 6, starting around verse, where am I? Verse 45, this is another famous story. Jesus walking on water. Now, YouTube videos aside, we all know that nobody can walk on water. Any chemistry students in the room today? Physical science you understand this, right? The whole thing about mass and displacement and what people can't float. It's not, you don't walk on the top of water like that. I mean, you can float, you know what I mean. You can't walk on water. You're too, there's too much mass there for the density of the water. It's not possible. Now, maybe if you, you know, whatever. There, there's ways maybe mechanically to engineer this, but I mean, we're just talking about a dude walking on a lake. It doesn't happen. He comes walking on water. It's, a, it's an amazing, impossible story. But again, we have to ask the question, why is it in here? Why is it there? What is the message of the story in the context of Mark? He walks on the water. He sends the disciples out, and they're rowing across the lake. And it's kind of like late at night, the fourth watch, in the middle of the night, really. And he sees them out there struggling. Sometimes Jesus it just baffles me. Like, you think you want to go help. Like, that's why he started walking out. But the text says he was going to walk past them. <laughs> You're like, what? Thanks, man. But he's walking out there, and he's acting like he's going by them, and they look over, and they start freaking out because they think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them. The wind stopped, and they were utterly astounded. They didn't understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. The loaves was the previous story where Jesus fed thousands in the wilderness, showing himself to be like Moses, feeding the Israelites manna in the wilderness. Only this time the manna didn't drop from the sky, that came from the man, it came from the person. 
he's the source, right? Who is this? So here he is walking on the water, and there's two things I want to point out to you. First of all, again, the language of Jesus in Mark 4, uh, sorry, Mark 6, 50, take heart, it is I. Now that's a good, helpful English translation. We might say more colloquially, more colloquially, it's me. It is I is the grammatical, that's why, it's I instead of me. Subject, not object. I apologize for the grammar. But it is I. It definitely sounds more British. It sounds more your ladyship. It is I, your ladyship. You know, something like that. But it's actually, you know, proper grammar. But the words in Greek are the same words I showed you from John 8.58. Ego eimi. Literally. Jesus comes walking on the water and says to them, I am. Don't be afraid. Take heart. I am. Walking on water. Okay? Now, again, these are Jewish men that he's dealing with, people who have heard the scriptures all their lives, probably learned to read them at some point. They, they may have been familiar with Job 9, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of gods, he is the one who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Language about God in Job 9. He tramples the waves of the sea. They might have known about Psalm 77, verse 19, that says about God, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Jesus says, don't be afraid, I am. He's walking on water. There's a lot of dishes in the sink, guys. You're not meant to come to any other conclusion. This is God. He's doing things only God does. He's validating these claims, not just by his speech, but by his power. And and it's meant to unveil the reality of who he really is, his true identity. Okay. Now, we could go through a lot more passages than this, but it's enough to, to set the table and to invite you guys to think about how the New Testament communicates about Jesus. Yes, there are some places where there are straightforward, explicit statements equating Jesus with God, but for the most part, the New Testament creates scenarios in which you're meant to come to no other conclusion by virtue of the fact of what you already know from the scriptures, from the reality of life experience that you should extrapolate. This this is not just a man. This is not just a prophet. It's not just a teacher. This is Yahweh. In right? So I think that this part of what I want to say this morning is pretty much, well, I'm not going to say it's uncontroversial because there are some people who would debate this, but by and large, most people who are scholars of the New Testament, who have spent any amount of time with it, even over the centuries, would have to admit that at least, yeah, that those are the kinds of claims the New Testament authors are making. Whether they believe the claims, that's another issue. And I think that's probably the more pressing issue, at least in our generation. I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot you can do to kind of disqualify those claims from the scriptures. But what we're dealing with is more of a question of, well, are those claims believable? Are those claims something that philosophically people could like get behind? Because what we're trying to ask people to consider 
is not just whether this is an accurate depiction of the New Testament's message. What we're asking people to consider is, will you yield to the implications of that message? And that's a different story. In our day, I think people are comfortable with Jesus in a certain way. In other words, people are comfortable with Jesus to the degree that they think he agrees with them. You guys know uh, it's 2020? Something going on this November. Some kind of thing. Oh, yeah, (laughs) presidential election. You're in Iowa. You think anybody's going to come visit? You think anybody will come around and, you know, just try to talk to you guys about why you should vote for them? Of course they're coming around. They're all coming. And they're going to show up in church meetings and town halls and all across. And I pretty much guarantee you not one of them is going to say anything negative about Jesus. Now, they might say things negative about the church. They might say negative things about Christians. They might say negative things about um, racist ideology or, you know, oppressive uh, whatever that they might ascribe to churches or institutions or whatever. But everybody's going to bless, you know, Jesus, as it were. They're gonna, everyone's on board with Jesus. It's very hard to find anybody who doesn't approve of Jesus. Just ask them. I mean, some of these candidates will talk to you about how they admire Jesus a lot. But what they mean is the parts of Jesus that agree with their agenda. That's what they like. Or they have an assumption that Jesus pretty much endorses whatever it is they've already come to believe. To the, to the degree that Jesus does that, oh yeah, sure, we yeah, love Jesus, boy. Now, I, I only say this because, you, you know, you want to have your antenna up. People are going to say all kinds of things. But pretty much a lot of us, you know, some, we can be the same way. We can pretty much say, if Jesus in my, were in my situation, he'd pretty much do what I'd do. Right? Isn't that how most people think? What do you think Jesus would do in your shoes? I mean, pretty much what I'm doing. I'm getting it done. I'm working hard. I'm taking, I had to cut a few corners here or there, but you know, Jesus understands that. Does he? Yeah, the sinless lamb of God. I'm sure he does. You're right. You know, what else I thinking, you know? We're all pretty much self-absorbed like that. We have a lot of confidence in our own capacity to work things out. So Jesus is a popular figure, and it's been this way in the Western world, at least, for thousands of years. Even in the Enlightenment, when these dudes were carving sections out of the Bible that they didn't like, you know, the non-supernatural things they would take out, but they preserved Jesus. There's something about him that people want on their side. And that'll happen again. You know, the Republicans will claim Jesus because they like this issue. The Democrats will claim him because they like this issue. And it'll be like everybody wants you to know Jesus is with us. Because you don't want to be against Jesus. I mean, that's silly. So I, I, what I'm trying to say is it's not the issue of what the New Testament teaches that people are going to debate you on necessarily because they'll tell you the New Testament might say that. But, I mean, we don't really have to believe that. We don't have, really have to respond to that. And the problem at times is the question of is it philosophically possible, like, isn't, isn't there a contradiction between saying Jesus was God? Isn't it 
impossible to say that the, the one God, invisible, immortal, in, you know, whatever, he became a human being. Isn't that a problem? Well, I want to put this before you in a different way this morning by suggesting to you that it's, it's not a problem at all. In fact, it's, it's a pattern, even in the Old Testament, that God would and chose to reveal himself in other created forms. I want you to think about the ways that God made his presence known in the Old Testament. I already mentioned to you the story of Moses and the bush, Exodus 3, where God reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. The bush was on fire, but it wasn't consumed because it was God revealing himself through a created form. Fire is a form that God uses frequently in the Old Testament to reveal himself. Remember when he led the people out of Egypt. He appeared as a column or pillar of fire. It was God with us. Emmanuel, his name means God with us. How was he with Israel? In a pillar of fire. It was fire that fell when Solomon's temple was dedicated. As an expression of the presence and glory of God. Guys, fire is a created form. Fire is not eternal. God invented that out of his own mind. He doesn't just appear as fire. He appears as cloud. Remember this? The pillar of cloud was during the day. Fire was at night. That's how he led the people out of Egypt. Cloud or smoke is... is you know, something that filled the, the, the temple so that the priests and Levites could not minister when the temple was dedicated under Solomon. That's a created form. And God inhabited it in order to reveal his presence. God reveals himself as a hand writing on a wall in Daniel 5. He revealed himself almost certainly as an angel or even a a human figure in Genesis 18 when he came to meet with Abraham and promised that Sarah would have a son. The story is written that you have to come to no other logical conclusion that the angel of the Lord in that story is somehow God himself coming to visit Abraham, man to man, face to face. It's phenomenal. God appears in thunder and lightning, Exodus 19, on the top of Mount Sinai. It's a way of manifesting his presence and all of these things are created forms. So it's not like God's never done this before. He has inhabited created forms to reveal himself in specific ways for specific reasons. Our objection, well, God can never become a human. That's a violation of his holiness. It's a violation of his sovereignty. Really? He didn't seem to have trouble with fire. He didn't seem to have trouble with smoke. He didn't seem to have trouble with a hand. He didn't seem to have trouble with an angel taking on the appearance of an angelic or human form. Why would we object to this when God has a track record of inhabiting created forms in order to unveil his presence? In fact, I would argue that there's really no other created form more suited for God to reveal himself as fully and thoroughly as he did in the person of Jesus. So well, why would you say that? Because of Genesis 1. You remember the story of creation. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates lights to govern the day and the night. He creates, you know, 
interplanetary things and galaxies and systems. And then he creates a little garden on the planet where he's going to stick people. He's creating beasts. He's creating vegetation. He's creating uh, birds and everything else. And then the last thing he does is he makes Adam and he makes Eve. And you know what he says about them in Genesis 1, 26 through 28? He says, let's create Adam in our image. And it says in the text, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's nothing else in all of creation that bears the image of God like we do, guys. Nothing. We're the, we're the only thing in the creation story that God says, my image is marked on that. Certainly the glory of, you know, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Absolutely. And creation itself sings his praises. No question about it. But people, people are the created things that bear God's image in a way that is unlike anything else. So I want you to ask yourself a question. If God were going to reveal himself definitively and ultimately in a created form, what better option is there in the cosmos for him to do it besides the thing that was originally created to match it? We're built according to his image. So for God to inhabit something that already was designed to resemble him, it's perfectly consistent with his strategy and his intentions. It's not a detour, is what I'm trying to tell you. It's deliberate. When God was making Adam, he already knew he was going to do this. Right? Or do we think God's winging it up there? Is God flying by the seat of his proverbial pants? No, he's got a strategy. According to Ephesians 3.11, he has an eternal purpose, and it hasn't changed. The, the purpose was already set before the foundation of the world. Adam was created because God knew he was coming as a person. And the whole track record of his interventions in Israel was to pave the way for him. To one day step into a Jewish body already marked with the image of God to bring it to fullness. As Colossians says, the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. It's impossible to imagine this, and yet it's the strategic design of God Himself. Our objections are not really so much that it's logically inconsistent because it is. Our objections aren't really so much that it's philosophically challenging. It might be. I think our objections are more along the lines of the consequences if this story is true. It has to do with who we are and who we're meant to be. See, we're, we're created in the image of God according to God's purpose in, in the story of Genesis, I mean, people are marked by something they can't escape no matter how hard they try. There's just something about us that's built to resemble him. And scholars and theologians try to define that. And Is it conscience? Is it rational thought? Is it emotion or attachment, loyalty? And they, they try to describe the traits. Maybe there's no way to fully nail it. But there's something about our person and our personality, that combination of unique identity and yet corporate solidarity that match 
the nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, but we're built in an image, and that image gets marred and stained over time because of the influence of sin, our mistake and foolishness, and our rebellion, the flesh, the world system, and the work of the evil one. And you think to yourself after looking around, man, people can really be terrible. Have you met people? You know, I mean, you just realize, like, who are these people? You know, I mean, some people, they're the worst people. But there's something about God, something about people that God is not going to quit on. And that's why Jesus came. As a human being, he's meant to say, this is what you're here to become. Yes, he came to die for our sin, to wipe away the consequences of guilt. But he didn't just come to die. He, come to, he came to pave a way, right? He said, I'm the way. Because he marks something that is true about who we're meant to be. Jesus died. And in that sense, he matched the furthest that Adam could go. This is Romans 4 and 5. You know, the wages of sin is death, Paul says. That's Romans 3. But then he describes how in Adam, everyone dies. Adam was the progenitor of us all. He sinned, led into death. We got to all follow him into death. And Jesus came and said, I'm going to. God said, I will embrace human destiny. Not because I'm guilty, but because I'm committed. Covenant means commitment to death. That's what covenant is. And God made a covenant with his people and said, I'm not leaving you there. Adam can only take us this far. The tomb is the end. Jesus goes everywhere we go. But then, guys, he breaks through the other side into life beyond the tomb. Life beyond the grave, guys, is the destiny of human identity. It's where we're going. And Jesus is there now, calling us from the other side, saying, come on, this is for you now. So that in Romans 6, Paul can say, don't you know that if you are baptized, you are buried with him in death and you've come into the newness of life already. You don't have to wait until your funeral and the tombstone is put on. New life starts now. New life starts now because Jesus became human. And there's a human being right now sitting on the right hand of God. I got news for you. There's a Jewish man at the right hand of God. That's Jesus, resurrected from the grave, representing us now. He's showing us what we're going to be. 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know one day you'll judge angels? You guys. One day we'll sit in judgment over the Michaels and the Gabriels and everybody else. It's bananas, and yet that's the destiny of human identity because we're marked with an image we cannot lose. It says we were made in the image, and then Romans 8, 29 says, listen, our destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what it's all about. That's why Jesus became human. Not just to wipe away the stain, the stain of sin, okay? But to model and demonstrate the destiny of human identity. It's what we're talking about. God, God's purpose is to provide that bridge, That's why the incarnation, to provide the bridge between our original identity and our ultimate destiny through the death, 
resurrection of Jesus. Adam was made in the image. Jesus is the image. We share in Adam's identity to the grave, but we join Jesus in bursting through that into life that won't die, eternal life. Or as 1 Corinthians 15, 49 puts it, we have borne the image of the man of dust. Now we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Sometimes we use the intellectual difficulty of God becoming human or Jesus really being God to avoid the implications of that. Because if Jesus is God, if he's not just a nice teacher who we admire or someone like Plato where we take principles but you know we don't buy the whole thing. Because if he's just that, then we can take and pick and choose as we like. But if Jesus is really God, it demands a response. Not one of appreciation or applause. It demands a kind of response that looks like follow and obey and we don't like that we don't like being told and given an ultimatum like that we can't be in charge of our lives anymore that somehow we're not the ones to call the shots but if Jesus is God then we have to reckon with that and we have to choose our way what we would prefer is to tame Jesus that would be more safe to admire him and applaud him as a brilliant intellect, as a keen interpersonal communicator, as a, as a pastoral voice in an age of despair and despondency. We, we would love it even if he were just a prophet who got right a few times, like a Nostradamus or something like that. We'd, wow, what an impressive person Jesus is. And, but we could still compartmentalize him. And he wouldn't make a claim on our heart. He wouldn't make a claim on our lives. And we use logic as the protection against the implications of discipleship. Well, guys, I'm not saying we're supposed to abandon logic. We're not. But we are called to submit it. We we submit our logic to the logic of God's cross, to the logic of the gospel of the king. Paul says there is a wisdom in this but it's spiritually discerned and you're not gonna sort it out. We lay down our logic and we submit it to God and we say, you built logic. (laughs) So help me think the way you think. Again, he's not unreasonable in his objectives. He's not confused or scattered in his goals. We have a choice once we come to the conclusion that Jesus is God because the call of the gospel is not understand and explain. The call is repent and believe. I want to leave you with that today. Would you stand? I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to ask that the Lord would just deposit the realities of these things in your heart today. If you're like me, you want to know the truth, you want to understand it as well as you can. And I agree. But sometimes our starting points the obstacles to our growth we make conclusions ahead of time that we've already determined are the limits of what's possible or what God will do problem is that when we do that we don't just we don't just create an alternative reality we actually hinder the agenda that God has for us as human beings I don't want that for you 
To me, that's terribly discouraging to think that we are the people getting in our own way. God has a purpose. He, he's not changed his mind from the moment that he formed that dust together and created Adam. It's, it's still present and alive in front of him and, and amongst us all today. So I, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if you're in the room today and you're, you're like, you know, I've, I've been fighting this for so long and I don't even know why. There's some logical consistency thing that I think I'm clinging to, but in the end, it's not really true. It's not really actual. The fight is in our own hearts oftentimes, and I just want to invite you today, if that's you, you want to say, look, today I'm turning the corner. I'm, I'm, I'm submitting not just my logic, but my heart and my life to the true King, Jesus, God in flesh then I invite you to respond to that today. There'll be some leaders on, the, on either side of the platform. Come on, do it today. Don't, don't delay. Turn yourself over to the living God. He's a much better leader than I am. He's a much better leader than you. He, he knows much better the way that your life should go in order to bring fullness of joy, satisfaction, and, and all the while accomplishing something that will endure forever. So if that's you, then as I pray, just make your way up to one of these sides here. Folks want to ch- just pray for you and encourage you today. King Jesus, you're awesome. You're amazing. There's nothing that we need that is not found in you one way or another. And God, we come to you today as people who, who are recognizing increasingly our limits. What we cannot do what we cannot make happen, what we cannot accomplish even with our best efforts and our greatest intentions. So Father, today I I come afresh with these brothers and sisters, as many as will, and, and we surrender to you, we yield, we submit our logic and our thoughts, we submit our agenda and our desires, we offer them and present them to you today, and we ask you, Lord, to have your way. We thank you that Jesus is who he says he was, We thank you that you are revealing yourself to us in Jesus. And we glorify that great name today. We pray that you'd move. We pray that you'd speak. We pray that you would build our lives on a firm foundation. Give us encouragement and strength to do the work of the gospel for the glory of Jesus' name. We thank you for this, Father. In Christ's name, amen. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org.